Okay, I need to continue being off script for just a little bit um, because my, my sister and my brother-in-law are, are watching on the live stream. And so I just wanted to say, hi, hee hee, <laughs> bro, bro. <laughs> okay, now we're back to the script. Right. I'll try not to go off script. When we look at the world Christian movement from a biblical perspective, we see that God intends for all the world's peoples to admire and emulate him forever. When we look at the movement from a historical perspective, we see its inexorable advance and are encouraged to submit to his sovereignty. Today, we will look at the movement from a cultural perspective. You ready? Yep. All right. The cultural perspective, let's see, uh, human cultures is kind of like fruit. And you can pick your favorite fruit. Uh, cherry, uh, plum, uh, peach. It has to be a fruit with a pit in it. Otherwise, I can't make my point. So just <laughs> pick which one you like. So you start on the outside of your fruit, all right, and you have the skin. That part of the fruit that you could see right away. And you, you can't see the, uh, well, okay, the fruits have uh, three parts, right? So the outside you have the skin. The peach has kind of a fuzzy skin. In the inside there's a pulp, right? Is that how you say it? Yeah. And then, and then in the core of that is the pit of the fruit, all right? So culture starts, the first thing that we see in culture, if we're comparing cultures with fruit, is the, the stuff you could see right away is behavior and products of a culture. That's the skin, right? You can see how people act and the things that they manipulate, all right? Now, uh, you won't know what they believe or what they feel or what they value from looking out the outside. You have to kind of take a bite of the fruit a little bit before you can see into the pulp of culture, all right? And then even further, and hardly anyone ever gets to see this, is what we call the worldview of culture. That's the pit, all right? And it's, it's protected, it's hard, and it, the pit is something that people don't think about at all. Um, it's unexamined, um, implicit assumptions about reality, about the external world, okay? So people don't think about the pit. All right. So culture is like fruit. Now, I'm going to explain just a little bit about how, uh, starting from the skin of culture, those behaviors and products. And I'm just going to give some illustrations about the skin, the pulp, and the pit so that you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, greetings. Even if you're not an insider, even if you're an outsider, you see greetings, different greetings in different cultures, right? So, some cultures greet in this way. Right? Other cultures may greet in this way. In the culture that uh, Carol and I uh, had the privilege of living in West Africa for 17 years, they would kind of do like we do, shake hands, but if you're younger than the other person, then you grab your arm. 
as you shake their hands. Now, uh, that is what you could see on the skin, okay? Now, the reasons they do that, how they feel about those greetings, the values, uh, the beliefs, we can't really see that as outsiders, right? And I guarantee you, from the pit, there are reasons that even they don't know why they greet that way. Because it started out with some uh, ancestor a long time ago among the culture uh, that you are. And that ancestor had an assumption about how he experienced the external world. And people have different assumptions about that. Okay? And so different ways of greeting uh, in different cultures come from the assumptions that they have that even they don't know. Okay, so the behavior. That was behavior a little bit. What about products? Okay, we're going to take a, a product of a culture, like we'll just say a toy, all right? Something that is used for an amuse, you know, amusing a child, okay? So we have balloons, kind of like these balloons. And when I was little, I could be amused you know, for all evening with a balloon. And, and now that I'm an adult, I can be amused uh, for about five minutes. <laughs> I don't have the attention span that I had when I was a kid. Um, but we can, we, you know, could have, have balloons. In, in the place where Carol and I lived in Africa uh, a long time ago, we lived in a, for part of that time in a rural village. And, uh, and my, what I did is there were two men in that village, and I would disciple them. I would help them learn how to live like Jesus, at least as far as, as I've uh, come to understand him and to know him. And so, so that was what, what I did. What these two men did for me is they helped me to understand their culture, their people. And it was a really cool exchange. So I had a problem... Um, <clears throat> in uh, the village where we lived. I had a problem with my, my outhouse. Um, the problem, the outhouse was great. It was the best outhouse in the region. But um, Carol doesn't like me to talk about that too much. <laughs> but my particular problem this time, there was, there was a bat in my outhouse. And I don't, have you ever had a bat in your outhouse? No? Okay, well, you're not at ease, you know, when you're in the house and there's a bat in there. And I didn't know what to do. So I went to my friends, you know, and one of my friends anyway, and I said, I said, there's a bat in my outhouse. He didn't see it was a great problem, but he wanted to help me out. So he, he simply goes to the outhouse, uh, opens the door, and grabs the bat, and then comes out with it. Then he sends his son to fetch a string. His son comes back, ties a string to the leg of the bat, and then he gives the bat and the string to his son, and they, they let go, and the bat's trying to fly away, naturally, right? But he can't, because he's on the string. He amused his son for the next 30 minutes, <laughs> maybe the next hour, and some of the other kids uh, in the area, and it's a product of culture. It's kind of like a balloon, But there are differences and different assumptions. And, and you know what you think of bats, but they just aren't the way we actually think they are. So now a culture is an integrated system, and I'm going to illustrate that right now. So 
the things that we think about, things that we believe, feel, our values, uh, can take, can, are spread throughout different experiences in, in our life. And, and it can be consistent even though uh, the experiences are different. And I'll, okay, let me illustrate that. We are North Americans, and we like platforms, all kinds of platforms that serve us in different experiences in our life. So uh, the first platform, uh, you have never seen me in this church building during a service sitting on the floor. I mean, just, you know, right there in front. You've never seen me do that. And you have never done that. No one here is sitting on the floor right here in front. Okay, why is that? Oh, I, I made it, I got up. Um, why is that? It's a part of our culture. We have this belief, I'm not going to say what it is yet, we have this belief that you probably should sit on these platforms that we call chairs. Okay? There are other kinds of platforms. When we sleep, we sleep on a platform that's uh, about yay high, Right? And if you are traveling and you're no longer home, you're, you're in the middle of a place you don't, you don't know where, we plan in advance to make sure that every night that we travel, we have a platform to be on with a private room, all right? And we are willing to pay $100, $200, sometimes $300 so that we, for one single night's sleep, all right? Now, other people from other cultures don't understand that. In their minds, they can uh, just travel, and all they need to, to be clean and to, to be warm at night is a blanket to wrap around them and a flat space. And they know that there are flat spaces all over the world, <laughs> everywhere, okay? Cultures are different. Assumptions are different. Beliefs are different. Um, we wear platforms on our feet. Okay? So I'm wearing a couple platforms that we call shoes right now on our feet. Different experience, but it's integrated in all the other things that I've been talking about. All right? Now, we, if we come from the outside, even inside, even indoors, we wear these platforms on our feet. Every one of you have a platform that you've been walking on. Now, even indoors, if you drop a little bit of food on the floor, what happens? Well, we don't eat that food. We throw it away. Unless, I found out just a couple decades ago, it's on the floor for less than five seconds. <laughs> if... If you saw it fall on the floor, then the five-second rule goes into play. You go, you dive it, you get the potato chip, put it in your mouth, and everything's all right. But if you didn't see it fall on the floor, ah, it goes in the garbage, right? Okay, now we're going to move into our worldview that you may not have thought about. The way we have assumed external reality is we believe we think that floors are dirty. Floors are dirty, and that's why we need a platform to keep just about everything that we value off the floor. Now, there are other cultures that don't have such uh, a worldview, okay? That's a, now, when I say worldview, I'm talking about the pit of culture. Those 
beliefs, those, those uh, assumptions that you haven't examined. They're implicit assumptions, all right? And so in Japan, for example, floors are clean in their culture. And so that if you walked uh, onto their living room floor wearing your shoes, they would feel the same way you would feel if your company came in and walked on your couch in their shoes. You would just, ah, how can these people not know that this is really bad? Okay? Cross-cultural differences. So we have the pit, the worldview. Um, now we're going to the we're going to explain the pulp of culture. Um, we've just got finished with the skin of culture. There are a variety of experiences in that our senses acquire from the external world. And it's such a big variety, it's overwhelming. For example, in your lifetime, you have seen many blades of grass. <laughs> okay. No two blades of grass are the same. They're each one unique and different. But we don't give them each their own name, do we? So it's not only blades of grass, but cars that you see, chairs that you sit on. They're each different, but we don't give them their same name. Houses that you see in your entire life, they're all different. What we do is we reduce them into a manageable number of concepts making thought and communication possible. If we didn't do that, if we didn't, I mean, if every brick you saw had its own name, it wasn't just a brick, we would go, there's no way that we could communicate at all uh, together. So we reduce these things and we make generalizations. And these generalizations are the products of our minds. We make them up. All right. So what color is this balloon? We all agree. Orange. I knew you would get it right. <laughs> How about this balloon? <laughs> Red, right? Okay. What color is this balloon? Chartreuse. Huh? Chartreuse! You did that on purpose. There's always one in every bunch. <laughs> I knew it. Somebody would do this. That's another cultural thing, well, we, but we don't have time to talk about that. <laughs> so, yeah, yellow, red, orange. All right, and we agree because we're, we're from the same culture. That was too easy of a question I gave you guys. But people from other cultures will only have one word for this range of color. Some people, some cultures. And so for, for some cultures, all of this is red. And you might get them to say, well, this is light red. <laughs> but they're all red. And yet other cultures, from the range of, of red on the, uh, the color scale to the range of yellow, they might have four or more different names for those colors, right? So, so a lot of our experiences of cultures, those are products of our minds, but they're not something that's real, real in, in uh, uh, the external world, okay? The fact is, says Paul G. Hybert, professor of mission and anthropology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and author from whom I've pilfered much of this material, <laughs> 
And he says, we can create as many categories in our minds as we want, and we can organize them into larger systems for describing and explaining human experiences. That's exactly what we do. Not a surprise that we have lots of different cultures <laughs> in the world, right? Culture is a people's mental map of their world. And it's not just a map of their physical world. It is, it is a guide for their behavior. It is a guide for how they live or how we live. If the world view of a people group's implicit assumptions, if that's the pit, then the pulp of the culture is made up of beliefs, feelings, and values. Okay? So beliefs, shared beliefs about the nature of reality make communication and community life possible. Okay? So we North Americans, all of us, probably, because I grew up here, I know, we believe in bacteria, right? And, and, and we're thinking bacteria makes you sick, gives you diseases, right? I have a friend in West Africa, his name's Greg Pruitt, and he lived in the village in West Africa, and <clears throat> whenever he talks about bacteria to... Uh, other people in that rural village of West Africa, the conversation goes something like this. Greg, this disease is caused by germs. Villager, where are they? <laughs> Greg, they are too small to be seen. Villager, well, how can they hurt me then? Greg, there are millions of them, and they're on every surface, and they cause disease. Villager, really? Even my friend Greg can tell that he sounds like a lunatic. <laughs> but in that same village, his friends, villager friends, will talk about their experiences with demons that, that oppress them. And they have behavior such that my friend Greg has never seen before. And he kind of at first said, really? Okay, culture is different. It's hard to go across cultures. It's hard to understand peoples of different cultures uh, that are different than us. So we have beliefs and then feelings. Okay, now feelings, notions of beauty, tastes in food and dress, those things are different. Likes and dislikes, the ways of enjoying ourselves, the ways of expressing sorrow. People have different ways, physical ways of expressing sorrow. Okay, but the feelings about, the feelings themselves, not just the behavior, is different. Um, in the place in Africa where we lived for 17 years, it's really easy to notice people like to dance there. People dance from the babies. There was an old lady uh, uh, that was one of my neighbors. She would dance. She couldn't even stand up, okay? She, she had to lean on a stick. She was sitting on a bed, and when I brought in some firewood, she was dancing whatever limbs she could still move. <laughs> and 
she was so happy to get a, a visit and some firewood. Everybody dances, everybody loves to dance um, where we lived. Now, my dear wife, Carol, on the other hand, Carol don't dance. Okay? And, and even as, as long as I've known her, she just, she, she, she's not comfortable dancing. She's not comfortable moving that way in front of other people, and it's not fun for her. Okay? So we don't go dancing. All right? Now, Carol is in West Africa. Okay? Right? She's at a wedding. And at a wedding in West Africa, everybody who are, who, who, who are, are friends of the bride and groom dances to express their joy at the wedding. And the, and the harder you dance, the more joy you have, right? Okay, and so the, there's Carol. And the ladies are pulling her into uh, the circle, okay? <laughs> Where there are crowds surrounding her, right? They're pulling her into the circle. The drummers are drumming. And I'm, on the, I'm, I'm in the crowd, I'm looking, I'm going, and I know Carol, and I'm going, oh, man, this is really going to be hard for Carol. I, am, I hope this goes well, man, please. And I saw Carol dance like I've never seen her dance before. <laughs> she was just dancing, sweating. Dust coming up, her, her scarf was falling down, and she was into it. She moved like I've never seen. I was in love <laughs> all over again. And the whole crowd roared, just Wah! They were so happy. Carol connected across a culture. For just a bit, she became a different and a good person in that culture and helped them. Beliefs, feelings, values. Values are that by which people judge the experiences of their culture. So, for example, in India, okay, different than us, but in India, parts of India anyway, losing one's temper is a greater sin than sexual immorality. Okay? Now, um, the values of a culture, how people judge whatever it is that they are experience, experiencing, you know, the, how they critique it. There were some missionaries in Congo, and uh, they had been there for quite a while and were not connecting with the people, even though they tried their best. They were trying to learn the language, and they could tell that the people didn't like them. And they didn't know what was wrong. Finally, someone was honest after a long time and just told them the truth. That Congolese man went up to them and said, you know, it, it's, well, it's the cannibalism. We don't like cannibals. And they said, well, what do you mean? Cannibalism. We're not cannibals. Sure, you're not cannibals. <laughs> we see what you eat. You get those cans from the city, and you bring them back. And on the can is a picture of, of, of carrots. 
When you open the can and pour them out, there are carrots on your plate. On another can, there'll be a picture of beans. You open it up, you pour it out, and there's beans on your plate. Well, after your baby came, you got a jar. And on the jar was a picture of a baby. You know, and you know what I'm talking about, the Gerber baby. And there was a misunderstanding among the whole people. And he said, you poured that out on your plate and you gave it to your baby. And then the misunderstanding can be taken care of. And I hope that they had a good career after that. Cultures are different. And it's hard to communicate across cultures. And yet, that is what we're supposed to do as a church. We have the Great Commission. Jesus told us to go to other nations, other peoples, and make disciples. Communicate the love of God to them. And, and the truth that God gave us, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. How do you do that in another culture? People in different cultures do not uh, live in the same world with different labels attached to it. You know, if there's a dog, some people say woo instead of dog. We say dog. If there's a cat, some people say nyadi instead of cat. But if it were that easy, if cultures just had different labels for all the things in the world, ah, that's not such a big... But the worlds themselves are different to the people, to the other people. So how do we communicate the gospel, the good news in those languages and plant churches in cultures which differ markedly from our own? The Apostle Paul knows how. He even gave us really good pointers. He says in 1 Corinthians 9... Verse 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he goes on, he says, I make myself a slave. I, or, I, I, uh, uh, to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win Jews. And he, and he lists some other people. To those who do not have the law, I become like those who don't have the law to win those other people. To the weak, I become weak so that I could win the weak. And then finally, he says, he, he sums it up. He says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save some. Cross-cultural communication. That's what we are meant to do. It's the only way to do our work. There's, it's not just the Apostle Paul. There are others who have done this, and admirably. William Rayburn was in uh, West Africa, and uh, he was adopted into a tribe of people, he and his family, completely adopted. They even provided his food uh, for him. Uh, and they lived very simply. But in this tribe, everyone no one owned their own thing. All property in this tribe belonged to the tribe. And so, but William Rayburn came with a, he had a gun. A very fine rifle. 
probably part of his family. <laughs> and so <clears throat> he is going to a men's uh, meeting in the men's clubhouse one time, and the chief uh, of the village uh, had a visitor that was his nephew, and when the visitor came, all the men in, in the village were there to greet him and, and uh, welcome him. And the chief said to them, said to them all, what a great elephant hunter uh, his nephew was. Another elder stood up and told him of his prowess in the bush and how he had escaped uh, many dangers and was very brave. And finally, after a long time of this, the chief uh, looks at William Rayburn in the dark. And his name over there is Obam Na. And he went to him and he said, Obam Na, it is now time. We are going to present our gun to my nephew. William Rayburn stood up. He hesitated a little bit, but he didn't really know what to do. So he left to his, his hut to go get his gun. On his way, he thought of a dozen great reasons why he shouldn't give his gun <laughs> to, <laughs> to, the, to the chief. Okay, a lot of reasons. On his way back, though, he kept thinking, our gun. The chief said, it's, we, it's time for us to present our gun. He was trying to figure out what to do, even as he was coming back. And I want you to hear uh, the words. Uh, I want you to hear it from his own words, how, what he did and how he did it. He said, as I re-entered the room, I caught again the sense of the world of Obam Na. If I were to be Obam Na, I should have to cease to be William Rayburn. In, other, in order to be Obam Na, I had to crucify William Rayburn nearly every day. In the world of Obam Na, I no longer owned the gun, as in the world of William Rayburn. I handed the gun to the chief, and although he didn't know, didn't know it, along with the gun came the surrender of a very stingy idea of private ownership. William Rayburn was becoming discipled even as he went to those people to disciple them. He was growing. It's not an accident. Go back. Think in your minds back to the Tower of Babel. Okay. In that story, the Tower of Babel, all the people shared the same language. And they lived on the plain of Shinar. Right? And then God confused the language. And then what did they do? They scattered. God confused the language so they didn't understand each other. And because, just because they didn't understand each other, they scattered. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds like the history of the world to me. And that was the beginning of it. Okay, so then what, 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 
The result of that were many nations, okay? And then we just kept scattering, and now we have thousands, tens of thousands of, of ethnic groups, different ethnic groups in the world, okay? But now go forward, Revelation, because that was in Genesis, go forward to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 7. What do we have? We have people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation before the throne of God worshiping the kind of people who would say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and they're not scattering they are together why? what is the difference? you already know the answer in between Babel and uh, that future day when we're all before the throne of God, every ethnic group, every nation, we will have obeyed the Great Commission and made disciples of all nations. We will have spent our money trying to do this. We, some of us will have gone and lived in, among people who are very different, in a different culture. Because we wanted this. Because we learned to want the kind of things that God wants. We learned to be like him. God is using the Great Commission to make us into the kind of people who would like being with him at the end of the age. And with, we, with each other. And there's no other way to do it. Carol and I uh, have a daughter. She's 32 years old. But when she was six... We made her set the table. It's not because we needed help setting the table. We've had an empty nest for, for 10 years now or so, and Carol and I have set the table by ourselves very well. <laughs> Why did we make her set the table? Because we want her to become like us, able to set the table. She's 32, and she sets the table just great in her own home. <laughs> okay. But that is what God, our Heavenly Father, is doing with us with the Great Commission. He doesn't need us to go into other people groups to make disciples. He could do it himself. He could just send an angel and tell them all that kind of stuff. He is doing it so that he has commanded us to do it so that we can change, just like William Rayburn so that we can grow and be like him. He is giving us those commands, not for himself, but for us. Obeying the Great Commission is as beneficial to us as it is to those that we disciple. I'm going to conclude now. Ooh, okay. <laughs> And here's the conclusion. Last week I asked you to, to take a photograph of the prayer, um, uh, prayer watch. I want to ask you to do that this week, just in case you weren't here last week. Take a, a photograph of that. I want to ask you to uh, choose a time, set it on your phone, an alarm on your phone, a time during the week, every week, to pray for the four requests that's on uh, those uh, that's on that slide. Uh, you can go into the lobby and there's a, uh, 
uh, one of the prayer watch slides on the wall. You could take a picture of that. And then when your alarm sounds, pray for one of those requests every week and keep doing it. Persevere in prayer. And because I believe that God will do it. He will do those things that are on that slide, which is to raise up someone from among us who wants to live among an unreached people group. And then and pray that we are the kind of people who obey God and we will send him. We will creatively live in such a way that we are able to send them so they can get good training and then go out and do that and support them so that we're all going in them. I believe that's God's will and he wants to do that and he wants us to do it so we can grow in him. Okay, I'm all done. You may go and serve the Lord in that way.